Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Norman Fisher and Michael Lerner as they discuss Everyday Zen, Changing and Being Changed by the World. This is part one of this two-part conversation. Norman Fisher, welcome to the New School. Thank you. It's nice to be at the New School here. It's a wonderful <laughs> place you have here. <laughs> That is a reflection on the fact that we're sitting in uh, Norman's living room uh, in Muir Beach overlooking the Pacific uh, on a beautiful day (laughs) with our mutual friend and colleague, Joan Evans, who is a student of Norman's, and my colleague, Ken Adams, who uh, does the sound for the new school. Norman, uh, you are a Zen priest, teacher, poet, former abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, and founder of the Everyday Zen Foundation. And you are the author of, I have a bunch of your books on the table here, but my guess is about 15, 16 books. Um, I have only read three of them. Um, Training and Compassion, Zen Teachings on the Practice of Lojong. Is that how you pronounce it? Mm -hmm. Uh, 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 Another wonderful book called Jerusalem Moonlight, An American Teacher Walks the Path of His Ancestors, and Taking Our Places, The Buddhist Path to Truly Growing Up. Um, And I wanted to ask you to start by reading um, uh, the 23rd Psalm from... Uh, your book of translations of the Psalms, opening to you, Zen-inspired translations of the Psalms. Would you read the 23rd Psalm? Sure. You are my shepherd, I am content. You lead me to rest in the sweet grasses, to lie down by the quiet waters, and I am refreshed. You lead me down the right path, the path that unwinds in the pattern of your name. And even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me, comforting me with your rod and your staff, showing me each step. You prepare a table for me in the midst of my adversity, and moisten my head with oil. Surely my cup is overflowing, and goodness and kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And in the long days beyond, I will always live within your house. What led you to translate the Psalms? Well, Uh, There's a long story behind that, which I tell uh, in the introduction to the book. But uh, it started when I was uh, in the Gethsemane Monastery, which was Thomas Merton's monastery in uh, Kentucky. And I was there for an event with uh, Dalai Lama and a whole bunch of uh, Buddhist, Western, mostly Western Buddhist uh, Uh, practitioners, along with the monks of Gethsemane and other Christian monastic practitioners. It was a meeting that was um, 
the Dalai Lama's idea, I think, to uh, fulfill a promise he had made to Merton, because they were friends, that he would someday come to Gethsemane and engage in dialogue. So this happened, and it was really fun. And um, so we were there practicing together in Gethsemane, doing the, um, you know, the, the, the daily offices with the monks, getting up in the middle of the night and seven times a day and having dialogue meetings in between times. And I had never experienced that before. I had, I had a lot of experience in Zen monastic practice, but none whatsoever in Christian monastic practice. I didn't even know what they did. <clears throat> so I was really kind of impressed and amazed by the way they practice. And as you know, uh, and I didn't know at the time, their main practice is chanting psalms. Uh, they come to seven times a day in choir and they chant the psalms and they have readings and stuff like that. Uh, and I happened to be there uh, when they were, because they go in a cycle, and I happened to be there at the point in the cycle where they were chanting the 137th psalm, which ends with uh, a line something like, uh, and, and dear God, please, because we are so upset with them, take their children and smash their heads against the rock so as to ven avenge you know, our grief. So, I mean, that's, I'm paraphrasing, but there is this line about yeah. take their children and smash their heads against the rock. So I was kind of shocked by that. I mean, I didn't really know the Psalms very well, and I, and I was not aware of that line. And uh, so when it was my turn to get up and give my little speech, uh, polite interreligious dialogue speech, I kind of didn't give my speech. Instead, I said, you know, I'm impressed with you guys. You seem to be really spiritual, wonderful people. But I'm perplexed by your practice. How in the world can this be your practice, that you would recite something like this? You know, I mean, this horrible thing. What are you thinking? You know, what are you doing? It just seems odd to me, and, I, and I'm not criticizing. I'm just asking, how do you understand it? Because I can't really understand it. And that was a kind of moment of reality in this otherwise you know, interreligious dialogue tends to be vague and polite and all this. So when I said that, then it was amazing. All these uh, monastics got up and did say how they felt about this and what, they, what it meant to them and, and so on. But that's what got me interested in the Psalms. I realized that this is an amazing thing, that for all these thousands of years, uh, Christian monastics, this is the rule of St. Benedict uh, ordains that this is what they do. So all... Christian monastic orders do this and have been doing it for 2,000 years. And then I realized, which I didn't really, hadn't thought about before, that psalms are also at the heart of every single uh, Jewish liturgical service. There's also a Jewish practice of reciting the psalms cyclically. But in the synagogue services, uh, they don't do it cyclically, but every service has many psalms in it. It's a huge part of the liturgy. And I thought, wow, this is really important. Literature, And then I thought, and guess what? It's actually the beginning of poetry in the Western tradition. It's like at the very beginning of the whole impulse toward the poetic. So then I wanted to study the Psalms. So, and I was doing a lot of traveling, and my son had come back from Jerusalem with a small psaltery about this big that you could stick in your pocket <clears throat> with Hebrew and English facing. 
So I would carry that with me whenever I traveled, and I would have a few English versions of Psalms. And I was fooling around in airport uh, waiting areas and on airplanes just for my own purpose so that I could understand better, trying to get what these poems were really saying. I was making my own versions of them, which I often do as a way of understanding something I'm reading. And I had a bunch of them, and I just kept going and going and going. And then I, my friend, uh, who's a literary agent, somehow I said, I don't remember whether it was my idea or I happened to mention it casually. And he said, oh, I think you could actually publish these. I said, no kidding. You know, it's hard <laughs> to imagine, <clears throat> especially since how do, you how do you translate poems from lang a language you don't know? I mean, I know Hebrew enough to be able to read the facing Hebrew and see which words correspond and look up roots. So I was very interested in the roots of words, but I'm not a Hebraist by any stretch. So um, he said, no, you can do this now. And people, apparently now, people are doing this constantly translating from languages they don't understand by using other people to help them and so on and so on. <clears throat> so the long and the short of it was that I put together all the stuff that I had and added a few more, wrote an introduction, and uh, it was published. And it's actually uh, one of my favorite projects, and one of my favorite books of mine that I really uh, like. And a lot of people use it now. A lot, and it's been so pl uh, wonderful for me that a lot of people, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, use it for, like people, clergy people use it in services. And I just got a, um, an ask for permission from... <clears throat> a Jewish group that's publishing a new machzor for the uh, High Holidays, and they're putting a bunch of the translations in, in it for the High Holidays. So it's been a wonderful, uh, serendipitous project. You uh, have written in many places, but uh, Jerusalem Moonlight, an American Zen teacher walks the path of his ancestors. Um, reflections on being Jewish and a Zen teacher. Um, and, um, and you, I think what I appreciate most about it is your combination of candor and kindness. Uh, you try to be kind to people, but you also try to be candid. Um, and um, there's a beautiful passage in here. Um, you're talking about um, a visit that you made to the Diaspora Museum. And um, so uh, you say... Uh, at Tel Aviv University, we tour the Diaspora Museum, an institution dedicated to the proposition that Jews who do not live in Eretz, is that how you say it? Eretz, Eretz Israel. Yeah. Eretz, the land of Israel, mm -hmm. Eretz Israel, <coughs> are human too. In fact, a plaque or sign at the outset of the exhibit, ex exhibition does say that the purpose of the museum is to see to it that there is mutual understanding between diaspora Jews and Jews living in the homeland, since any misunderstanding or lack of mutual respect would be disastrous for both sides. Of course, the need for such a museum only occurs 
where there is already a lack of mutual respect, <laughs> where there is already the feeling that Jews in the diaspora, a term, of course, that only exists at all with the assumption that all Jews really belong in Israel and are only temporarily displaced, <laughs> are taking the easy way out, and so on. So, oh, dear. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. So then... Um, you said uh, the most moving exhibit in the museum for me is something called the ingathering of the exiles. Uh, you know, first Aliyah, youth movements, kibbutzim, tears strangely welled up in my eyes. Uh, the feeling that I am an exile from what I can't say and that I might return home to where I can't say, to the state of Israel, to California, to Pennsylvania where I was born, to Ruskover where my grandfather was born, to death. I think I feel a feeling growing in me which I will perhaps which I think will perhaps occasion something sometime I do not know what or when and this is the passage I think of Judaism as a religion of life in Judaism the dead are considered unclean and must be buried immediately children are named for them to get them back into life as quickly as possible there's not much sense of afterlife rather the ongoing life of the community and the Bible itself emphasizes hard work, prosperity, rain and season, if you behave in accord with the traditions. Or, as our 20th century American Jewish mamas have it, be a doctor, get married, have kids. And I think of Buddhism as a religion of death, with its meditations on death, especially its famous cemetery contemplations of the old traditions. Uh, but then again, Judaism, this great religion for life, has left a lot of people frozen, guilty, and afraid, unable to jump into life for fear of breaking God's rules. And Buddhism, this great religion for death, has become famous for fostering a broad, free, quirky, enjoyable approach to life. Things are very confusing. Maybe not things, but just our way of thinking about them. So I really liked that sort of combination of, of candor, and, and yet in many places, kindness. You, mm. you make a real effort when you're speaking of people uh, to speak of them in a way that will not be offensive. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you're very candid about your responses to things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I never thought of it that way, but... Uh, but yeah, I mean, I... I don't think that I'm... Well, I guess, yes, maybe in part, um, uh, when you're putting something in print, uh, I guess there is the possibility that somebody would read it uh, and be offended by it or take offense. No, but I know a lot of, a lot of writers are paralyzed by that, yeah, freaked right. out by that. I, I kind of, in, a certain, in some way, don't, even, don't really believe that anybody will ever read what I write, so I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not, I don't feel... Constrained by that so much, uh -huh. but I but I do feel that um, I do feel uh, an affection for people, mm -hmm. even though it's uh, sometimes people behave badly and and are not you know and are all screwed up in many ways, mm -hmm. but one can still be affectionate toward them. So it's not that I'm trying to like censor myself, and. And you know, not say the more nasty things that I'm thinking about people. It's more like I just want to be honest. And part of the way I feel is that people are kind of amazingly dear, mm -hmm. even in their sometimes destructiveness. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like to be abbot of Zen Center? 
Well, uh, I actually had a pretty good time uh, when I when I uh, was first elected Abbot. Well, it's a long story. Uh, I didn't really want to do that. That was well. It's, there's a famous, perhaps apocryphal story that they asked everybody else, and they said no, and you were the guy who. Uh, was willing to do uh, this. I don't know. If that's that's true. not actually. Well, that's that. That was. Uh, no, that's not true. Uh, actually, um, <laughs> that's how it but, came to me. Just so it, you know that that's. That yeah. They asked the more senior people, and they yeah. turned it down. But it is true in the sense that uh, when Dick Baker left, I was elected Abbot in 1995, mm. or a few years before that, and served in. I started in 1995. There were many, many people in the organization who were senior to me. Mm -hmm. um, all of who left in the 80s, uh -huh. uh, leaving only a few of us behind mm -hmm. who could do some things like mm -hmm. that. So in that sense, it may, it may be true. But no, uh, it's actually, it was the opposite. Mm -hmm. I was elected abbot at a very uh, historically dicey moment right. in the history of the organization. And I was, the, I was elected unanimously, and there was nobody else who was even a candidate mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. And there were other people who were nominally who had the qualifications, mm -hmm. but but people had confidence in me, and that's why I felt like I had to do it, mm -hmm. even though it was not our family's plan. And it, it took a great deal of negotiation with my wife mm -hmm. to be able to agree to to do it. But when I first was uh, uh, installed, I remember saying to people, "My number one priority as abbot is to be happy, personally happy myself." Uh, and that, that was like kind of shocking to people, you know. And I, but then I explained that, well, uh, the abbot has a big impact on the whole community, and an unhappy abbot makes everybody unhappy, and a happy abbot makes everybody happy. So, uh, and I want to be happy, and I figure as abbot, if I'm happy, then it'll spread to other people. So I'm really going to try to have a good time here and not and not uh, suffer too much. Mm -hmm. And I did all in all, I had a good time. It was very. You, you have to go to so many meetings and be so connected with people that I didn't have time for my uh, literary work, which always uh, makes me feel uneasy. So there was that. That wasn't the greatest. How long were you at it? Only five years, because uh, my wife agreed to the, uh, my just doing it on the uh, ironclad promise that I would only serve for five years, mm -hmm. that I would not go on longer. Typically, all the other abbots have gone on longer, but I had an ironclad agreement with her that it would be five years, and that's all. And at the end of five years, in the, the, the circumstances that made it difficult for anybody but me to be abbot within five years had mm -hmm. changed to the point where it was now possible for other people mm -hmm. to be abbot. I, I, as I used to say, I'm here to prove that an unenlightened person could be abbot, mm -hmm. uh, because this was not clear before. You know, before that, all abbots had been very enlightened, charismatic, important people, and uh, I was the first sort of person to come from the ranks and be a normal person doing it. And uh, I was the one they had confidence in to do that, so I did that. And then after five years, they, everybody survived, and the place thrived, and they thought, well, if he can do it, then other people can do it. So then it was easy for me to go away. In your book, Jerusalem Moonlight, uh, there's a chapter called Zentatsu. 
The first time I saw Zentatsu was at a lecture he was delivering at Zen Center in San Francisco. It was soon after the old Japanese abbot Suzuki Roshi died. Suzuki Roshi was loved by everyone. He was quiet, deep, and wise. Now here was his replacement, Dick Baker, in parenthesis, his successor, a tall young American just back from several years in Japan, all angular and bony, sharp in every way. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm excerpting here. Uh, you didn't always understand what he was talking about, but, but it was always fascinating and inspiring. After about 10 years, I could understand it pretty well. He explained how Zen practice was the logical conclusion, the crowning touch of Western science and history, how it was not only the answer to our personal problems, but the answer to everything, in quotes, culture, politics, art. He was always very imp improvisational, very untraditional, very exciting in what he said. He had a marvelous way of drawing you in. I didn't particularly take to him that first time. After I got used to him and had a great deal of affection for him, or afterward, I got used to him and had a great deal of affection for him. Finally, I came to love him, as I still do today, although it was a funny kind of love, like loving a rainstorm or a rainbow, something inherently unreliable. <laughs> so um, I, I came to uh, California in uh, 1972, so I was around when Dick Baker was Roshi. And in fact, I have a memory of being in Muir Beach, I think, um, at Sam Keene's house right. with, uh, with Roshi Baker and Michael Murphy. Right, and they Sam were great Keen, friends, yeah. And a friend of mine named Rick Carlson. And I'm trying to remember whether Jerry Brown was there or whether they were just talking about Jerry Brown. Um, but it was so interesting because... Um, you know, my nature is that I'm an introvert, and and actually, it's not that I have in any way a, a sort of low self-esteem, but I don't, I'm grateful for this, I don't think much of myself. And here were a group of people <laughs> right. who all thought highly of themselves, you know. Right, right. And so I was watching them talk, and... Um, and I felt like there was no way for me to engage with this very kind right. of high-level, you know, right. thing that was going on. But that was my direct experience of, of Richard Baker, yes. uh, who yes. was, as you describe him so beautifully here, uh, an extraordinarily charismatic um, human being um, who ultimately um, uh, got involved with... Uh, a student, uh, I, I know her as do you do too, and married to someone we also both know, and um, that blew the whole thing up. Yeah. So uh, you write about the process by which um, uh, the Zen community came to grips with this. Um, you you wrote in '95. There's Still no real resolution for all this. More or less things have normalized. Um, this is too bad, but it's not that bad. No one is harming anybody. And I'm especially happy that Zen Center has not, on the few occasions when Zentatsu has done difficult things, reci reciprocated with difficult things. So, uh, and, um, so here we are, 2000, 
15, um, which is uh, 20 years after you wrote this. Right. How do you look at it now? Um, more or less the same. I mean, um, uh, to me, uh, now, 20 years later, it just seems more and more obvious that things would have gone the way they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, given the times, I mean, uh, all those, that, that uh, meeting of those people that you just uh, mm-hmm. mentioned, in the early 70s, there, were, uh, there was a whole generation of young, mostly young men, mm-hmm. who were 1970s entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, this was still, uh, feminism was in its early mm-hmm. days, uh, so uh, there, was no, uh, there was no consciousness, you know, that, that this sort of male ego uh, uh, business was, had limitations. Mm-hmm. And this was, there was a lot of hopefulness. It's actually kind of lovely when you think about it. Now, people that age are not hopeful, mm-hmm. but but these guys were so convinced that they them, they were going to like figure out the world and, and solve it. You know, they were probably like the app people at Apple today. You know, who mm-hmm. also think that they're going to figure out the world and solve it. Uh, so they were kind of mightily going forth. You know, friends with each other and networking with each other, and re- realizing now after my practicing Zen for all these years with people realizing that Dick at the time was in his middle 30s, late 30s, had very little experience practicing Zen, almost, almost no experience really practicing Zen with people and seeing the kinds of things that happen and, and, and the, the way things go with people who are trying to practice. He, in other words, he was very, very inexperienced and he was caught in a historical wave in which he couldn't help but feel as you say, you know, too much empowered. Mm-hmm. And so given all of that, uh, and the fact of the matter is that all of that was a really good thing for Zen Center. In other words, because of all that, the Zen Center could expand, it could grow, and could have the kind of uh, financial and real estate footprint that it has now. Because of, his, because of all this in him, that was not just him, but a whole wave that was absolutely, in hindsight, doomed to break against the shores of reality, you know, eventually. So one way or the other, that was going to happen. There was no doubt. Uh, So I I don't blame him per se. I mean, I think like all of us, you know, none of us is like a person. We're all some uh, result of many, many forces. And we're all, you know, victims of our own lives, and our sense of agency is small compared to all the forces that drive us. So I don't blame him really. And and oddly enough, of all the people who were hurt uh, and, and and victimized by what happened, uh, everybody who was victimized and hurt was it was their own fault, you know, in some way. He's the one who was most hurt. The the hurt is most lasting and most profound in him. So at this point, virtually everybody is healed. Mm-hmm. But 
probably he's not. Mm. There's a passage where you talk about being at uh, the Tassajara Meditation Hall when suddenly it catches fire and burns to the ground. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, um, this is in, you know, in a beautiful, very rural uh, area of uh, California coastal area. Yeah, in the mountains, and, yeah. um, and you um, And you say that during that time, uh, Baker was uh, planning the launch of Green's Restaurant. Mm -hmm. And everybody in the community thought that this meant inevitably that the Green's Restaurant project, which was huge, would be deferred. Mm -hmm. But in fact, he went straight ahead. And, right. you know, so, so, as you say, his, his impact on the creation of uh, the the physical footprint of uh, of Zen Center was was extraordinary. You're listening to a conversation with Norman Fisher and Michael Lerner. I have great. I I, I didn't know the man. Uh, I I know all the people who were involved, but I have to say I have great, honest compassion for all of them. You know, mm -hmm. just and and particularly because you know the whole thing about. Eros and spirituality, and you you write mm -hmm. about this mm -hmm. in yeah. uh, training and compassion, Zen teachings on the practice of Lojong, mm -hmm. um, and you talk about the unbelievable power of uh, Eros, um, and it's true, and it turns out to be the thing that in most spiritual communities causes the most difficulty. So mm -hmm. it's not just Baker, right? I mean, this right. no. again right. and right. again and again. Right. And um, in fact, most of the spiritual teachers that I've been anywhere near have struggled with this issue themselves. You mm. Know? Mm. Which is why, for me, you know, I, 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 I read with such interest uh, this training and compassion, Zen teachings on the practice of Lojong. And, um, and I'm going to ask you to talk more about it, but the whole business of making all these vows, right? Mm -hmm. um, I've just never wanted to do that <laughs> because it's too hard. <laughs> it's too hard. And what I've come to feel for myself is that what I celebrate as being gloriously, imperfectly human, Yeah, you know? that what I really identify with more than anything else is just, you know, the whole mess of being human. Yeah. I mean, I try to be kind. I try to be ethical. I try to be many of the things that you describe as a uh -huh. house. Uh -huh. But for me to say, look, I'm going to do my best, but to vow... Uh, is a different sack of cats. <laughs> and so somehow I found myself um, very inclined toward Buddhist meditation uh -huh. and the celebration of the great traditions, but, but not interested in vowing. Uh -huh. Yeah. Right. Well... In Mahayana Buddhism, 
which is the Buddhism of vows, mostly. Mahayana sutras, there's passages in some of them with page after page after page of great bodhisattvas and the uh, absolutely extravagant vows that they take mm-hmm. uh, beyond uh, anything that one could imagine could actually be accomplished by a human being. In the Mahayana uh, tradition, the foundational teaching is the teachings uh, of emptiness. All, all dharmas are empty. Things don't really exist in the way that they think we think they do, and that our whole conceptual framework about being who we are and the world being what it is is fundamentally and drastically incorrect. Mm-hmm. So the idea that I personally am going to take a vow to do the following things, and therefore having taken that vow, I am going to do those things and accomplish them in a rational materialistic world as we usually understand, is not what vowing means in Mahayana Buddhism. It it means something more like I'm going to uh, align my heart with... uh, what is most um, brilliant in being an ordinary human being. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you, I, I resonate with what you say. I'm the same way. I, I just, what I celebrate the most is not enlightenment or some you know, uh, transcendent state, but just being human, being a normal, ordinary human being with all that that entails, including a certain amount of suffering and all kinds of difficult emotions and so on. I, I really do think that that is what, to me, that's the goal and the beauty of the spiritual life, it, that it is that. Mm-hmm. But part of being a human being, I think, is having these enormous and, by definition, impossible aspirations. And so, uh, in Mahayana Buddhism, we affirm those, that imp- the impossibility of those aspirations and we dedicate ourselves to them mm-hmm. as part of the ownership of what we are as human beings. I think a human being, uh, human beings have unlimited imaginations. You, you can imagine the idea of, I will save everyone. I can imagine that. Because I can imagine that, I have to, I have to try to do it, even though I know it's impossible. So, uh, so, you know, dreaming the impossible dream is a uniquely human capacity. And yes, if we think that we're actually going to do the things we vow in the literal way that we might uh, believe we can do them, then yes, then it's foolhardy. But based on these other teachings that I mentioned, the emptiness teachings, the Mahayana sutras, and the whole spirit of them, Really, the vowing is, you could maybe one way to put it is, it's a poetic vowing mm. that speaks to the poetic heart mm. in all of us. And I think every human being has that. Every human mm. being has that. And then, yes, but as you're pointing out, not every human being uh, feels like vowing in this sense. Uh, I think that has to do with our character and our karma and our upbringing and our vision of our lives. But every human being, yourself included, you know, has an impossible dream. You, know, you wouldn't have been doing all the things that you've done in your life if you didn't have an impossible dream. You'd be working in a bank or something. Mm-hmm. Not to say that bankers don't have impossible dreams. They do. Too, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they do. They, 
They they definitely do. Yes, uh, they do. Um, I wanted to ask you about the relationship of, of Zen to archetypal psychology, the tradition of Jung and Hellman and others. Um, because um, you, you do talk about how Zen opens you to the life of the imagination. Um, and so clearly imagination is a significant part of your vocabulary, and as a poet, how else could it be? Yeah. Um, but in, and you are read in many fields, um, so, you know, Toynbee said that it might well turn out that the greatest event of the 20th century was the coming of the Dharma to the West. And yet, Carl Jung warned against the Western psyche uh, trying to borrow uh, an Eastern uh, mode of thought as its core uh, dimension. Um, you also uh, point to the suffering that takes place in Zen students when um, they think they're going to overcome their life problems through deep meditation and when they're actually going to need to do psychotherapy or talk with friends or journal or whatever. There was a wonderful article, which you may remember also in Tricycle years ago, called Spiritual Bypass, yeah. uh, where somebody said, you know, you have all these people who meditate forever, um, but then they come back into everyday life and they yeah. still have the same problems. And so you're pointing to this. So in the West, at least, uh, my way of coming to understand those those struggles of everyday life is is in the tradition of Jung and Hillman and Marsilio Ficino, the great Renaissance Neoplatonist, where the archetypes are at play within us. Mm -hmm. So taking love as an example, you know the archetypes of of Eros and Psyche and how Eros shoots his arrow and wounds Psyche and they both begin to suffer and over time if they really work with the suffering, they can reach the alchemical marriage of uh -huh. the union. Um, Zen, as a religion not only of death but of emptiness, um, uh, doesn't seem to me to work much with the archetypes. Uh -huh. So my question to you is, um, do the archetypes hold interest for you and whether or not they do, how do you relate the archetypal imagination to the practice of emptiness in Zen? Uh, hmm. Well, you know, I don't really know so much about that. I mean, I've read a few things by Jung, and I think I read one or two books by James Hillman and was... Mm -hmm fascinated with them. He's a wonderful thinker. Mm -hmm. But uh, but that's not that it's way not of yeah, that way of thinking about things has not really <clears throat> been something that I've focused right. on. But um, so uh, when I or we here in our time and place try to practice Zen I mean, one of the things that 
I think is inescapable eventually one way or the other is to actually see what is going on within oneself. Spiritual bypass would be not seeing what's going on within yourself and kind of covering over what's going on within yourself with a veneer of spirituality or Zen or Buddhism. And that certainly can be done and often is done in the course of someone's practiced life. But eventually that can't continue and everything comes crashing down around your ears and you have no choice but to confront what's really going on within you. So I think there's an inevitable process, even if you don't intend it, it can't not happen, where a Western person growing up with, and I think this archetypal life is in us all Mm -hmm. as Westerners, whether we read about it or not, Mm -hmm. somehow or other it operates, it can't help but come out. And when we try to practice Buddhism, eventually we're going to practice Buddhism as a Westerner. We're going to understand it as a Westerner. And so from the point of view of an Asian Buddhist, we might be misunderstanding. They might say, you people really don't understand. You're just making it into your own categories of thought. So this is the uh, very sensitive and interesting dance that I'm quite aware of having been involved with my whole life is, okay, so we can't just like project, make Buddhism into Jung or Freud. On the other hand, if we think that we can eliminate Jung and Freud and become Japanese, that's not going to work out either. So how do we really try to take this on and really try to understand it on its own terms and yet understand it for the people that we really are? So in in a way, you could really argue that Western Zen is a different religion from Japanese Zen or Vietnamese Zen. It's really a different religion. The teachings are the same. uh, The texts are the same. But it's actually, we're understanding them differently. And one of the ways that we inevitably are understanding them is in this archetypal way. So even though I don't know that language very well or understand it very well, I'm sure that in my, the way I practice, and in my case, uh, so my equivalent of that is the literature that I've written and studied for so long. And that's where the idea of imagination comes in. I mean, it's a long story, my idea of the imagination is not the same as sometimes Buddhism talks about imagination in a very pejorative sense. Well, what is your idea of the imagination? Well, it's, <laughs> I've written about it in, in, uh, in, in essays and things, but basically for me the imagination is that which enables you to see the world as it actually is. Uh-huh. That which helps you to go beyond the sort of limited view that the perceptual an intellectual apparatus would create a world that is pretty limited. The world is much bigger, and it's the imagination that's the faculty that helps you to really see the world as it is. Sean, you were going to say yeah, something. Yeah, you were going to say something. I love these teachings, and Norman has talked about it um, in our Zen seminar some, and also uh, um, the, there is a book coming, I know. Yeah, yeah. In, in, I have a book coming in the fall called Experience. Uh, essays on thinking, writing, language, and religion. And I, and I really thought a lot about my ideas about the imagination and tried to write an essay really going into it pretty thoroughly, and that essay will be in that book. Uh-huh. Yeah, the imagination is an f- amazing subject. Um, you probably know that in the Sufi tradition, um, uh, the imagination is... Um, leads us to the place 
that is above the human experience where we meet the gods. The gods yeah. come down and communicate with us yeah. through the imagination. Yeah. Uh, that was Ibn Arabi's uh, vision yeah. uh, described in uh, the great book Alone with the Alone. Mm. Um, um, but yes, the, the imagination is the field of the archetypes, whether yeah, we yeah, speak right, of it in terms right. of Jung and Hillman or in terms of literature. It's clearly the field of the... And so when you say that's where you encounter reality. Yeah. And, and so what's fascinating about that is um, that the reality that you encounter is in no way the reality of what most people take for reality, you know. Or, no, I won't say it's in no way, but it, it is perhaps orthogonal to reality in the way we mm-hmm. understand it. Yeah, I mean, it isn't another realm. No. It's this world. Right. Uh, and that's something that I really appreciate about the Zen teachings that really insist on that. It's mm-hmm. just this world, mm-hmm. and yet it's this world perceived in its fullness, and that, uh, and that our human perceptual and intellectual apparatus, in its narrowest sense, reduces that world to something very flat. But it's not flat. It's actually quite open. And, and then that's, it's the imagination, which I think is awakened by religious practice, by art practice, by deep thought and reflection. The imagination brings the fullness of this actual world that we're living in to, to us. Mm-hmm. You were born in uh, a small town in Pennsylvania, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, Jewish family, you lived in an apartment above your grandfather's tailor shop. Mm-hmm. Is that That's right? right? Yeah. And your grandmother was your best friend. Yeah. You didn't she was a, a tailor, lot. too. Yeah. Right. You didn't have a lot of friends to... No, because uh, it, we didn't. We lived in a. There weren't any other houses around. You know, mm-hmm. there weren't any other kids around. So, mm-hmm. right. What did you learn from your grandmother? Well, she was very quiet and funny, and she had a great spirit. And our main activity uh, was uh, well, two main activities. We would um, look out the window. Not that much to see, you know. <laughs> North Main Street in Pittston, Pennsylvania, said there'd be cars going by, and we would sit up there and just look at the cars going by and talk. And then we would listen to the radio. Uh, she had her favorite soap operas, mm-hmm. The Guiding Light, which I think is still going, mm-hmm. and um, Jack Benny program and stuff like that. And uh, so just the pleasures of quiet, aimless uh, time. Uh, I think that's what I learned from her. And also, uh, she was just such a kind and loving person. I really love my grandmother. She's a wonderful person. My, this is my mother's mother. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and we live with them, as, as I said. Yeah. And you describe yourself as a child, as I forget the words you use, but... Um, was it dreamy or moody? There's some word that you use to describe your childhood, or, but perhaps you can just tell yeah. me what it was actually like when you were in grade school. Yeah, well, I think my parents worried about me because, yeah, I was 
I don't really, uh, you know, my own, I don't really have quite uh, a sense of it or a memory of it, but uh, it just, it seemed like gloomy. Everything seemed kind of gloomy and, you know, a little bit dark and vague. And so it wasn't anguished. Like, I didn't have a hard childhood. I mean, my, my parents were very nice people and uh, nothing bad happened to me, you know, no trauma that I can remember. Uh, which it turns out is like almost unheard of. I know. Like I don't know any anybody else. You know, I always think that I'm a normal person. Yeah. You know, and there's about five of us on the planet. <laughs> everybody's abnormal because everybody's been through hell. You know. What were you like in eighth grade? Well, I remember that when I went to. Um, I tell this story often because it's a br brilliant story about my mother. When I went to the seventh grade, uh, my parents, the school that we, uh, in our town, was a terrible school, like known to be like an awful school. So my parents decided that they were going to send me to a better public school in the other town across the river. And I went into that school in the seventh grade, and I remember being absolutely terrified because I thought, oh my God, you know, like it'll be a bigger school and all these kids will be, you know, much smarter than me and nobody will know me and nobody will like me. And I was really scared. And I remember my mother said to me, don't worry. She said, you just have to follow one rule. And if you follow this one rule, everything will be okay. And I said, what is it? She said, all you have to do is never, ever say anything mean about anybody. So if you never say anything mean about anybody, you'll be fine. And I said, okay. So I remember I went to the school, and I remember a moment in which, like, you know, how middle school kids are sitting around gossiping about other middle school kids. And I remember, I don't remember who or what, but I remember a moment in which this is going on. And I tensed up, and I realized I can't say anything like that, you know. And I, and I just was silent. And I followed that rule in desperation, in terror. And it worked like a miracle. And I was shocked to discover that by the end of the year, I couldn't believe it, but uh, it seemed like uh, the other kids liked me and I was doing all right. And I was totally surprised by this, by, because of this one rule. So I think by the time I was in the eighth grade, I was an adjusted, you know, well-liked person in the school. And... Uh, I think it wasn't until I was in high school where you could tell, you know, the difference between the grades that I realized, oh, I'm getting really great grades. I must be smart, you know. And I think I was the uh, valedictorian of my high school, and I gave a speech and all that. So, but I didn't. But that that wasn't when I was in the eighth grade. I'm sure I was still pretty scared about whether or not I would survive. And. Uh as a senior in high school, beyond being the valedictorian and, and popular, what were you like? Where, where were you? Well, see, I went through a period in, in my adolescence uh, where I was very religious. Uh -huh. So that probably went with the moodiness and the darkness and the, and the otherworldliness. Religious uh, in a Jewish sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, would, I, would, I actually used to go to the synagogue every single day. Uh -huh. And I used to lead the services. I was like a child prodigy. Uh -huh. In Judaism, I would lead the services, and all the old men were like, you know, amazed and very happy. How old were you when you were doing that? I was doing, I was like 13, 
14. So after your bar mitzvah? Yeah, and then I studied for my, my bar mitzvah for several years. So all the years while I was studying for my, my bar mitzvah and the year or two afterward, I was very religious and focused on you know, that, all that. But then uh, when I got into high school, simultaneously that wonderful rabbi who was my really good friend and I studied with, he left uh, the area and I discovered girls and sports and all that. So then I completely, like it seemed like, seemingly almost overnight, went from being a very religious, retiring person, really enjoying and focused on you know, going to the synagogue and prayer. I became uh, like a regular American kid. I would play basketball every day. I was on the football team. I was on the track team. I had girlfriends. I had a really fun time in high school for two or three years. You're listening to a conversation with Norman Fisher and Michael Lerner. You know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade. What was the name of the rabbi? His name was Gabriel Meza, and he was the brother of Jackie Mason, the comedian. Jackie Mason was his younger brother. And imagine Jackie Mason being a rabbi. Jackie Mason actually is a rabbi because oh. this was a rabbinical family. Every male in this family, for generations as far back as anybody could remember, was actually a rabbi. They were a very important, almost like, uh, you know, they were almost dynasties, you know, in Europe. Mm -hmm. And they had a dynastic family as rabbis. So, and he was a brilliant man and very funny, just like, just like Jackie. And so Jackie Mason was a part of my childhood. We used to go to Jackie Mason's uh, when I was, uh, you know, in college and high school. And I'd go to visit Rabbi Mesa. We would often go to Manhattan and go to Jackie's apartment, which was, Jackie Mason was just like he on TV, he actually is just like that. His apartment, I'll never forget, it was like, he was a bachelor, like a swinging bachelor. So his apartment was like entirely painted pink, except for the mirrors, which were on all the ceilings and all the walls, and gigantic beds in all the bedrooms, and you know, almost no furniture, and he had like a bunch of goons working for him, you know what I mean? <laughs> These guys that you... You would have to order up from Central Casting, who would say, Jackie, Jackie, what do you need now? You need some coffee, Jackie? And all this. It's really hilarious. And, uh, and so uh, we, would, we would go to visit him. And, and so Rabbi Meza was a very serious person, you know, very, very. Uh, he was a combination, as there are many very interesting Jewish people who are religious, uh, faithful, knowledgeable. I mean, completely kosher, you know, every single jot and tittle, and wide open mind, interested in everything, interested in, uh, you know, philosophy and science and the latest trends in culture. And that's how, that's how he was, a very, very brilliant So did person, he kind know. of single you out for your abilities and encourage you? Yes, but, uh, but the reason for that was because he, he, he was young. It was his first job out of rabbinical school. And it was the only job he could get. And obviously, this was like not somewhere he was going to stay for very long. He didn't have a single person to talk to in the entire congregation. Because it was not a, this was a small town. And nobody in the town, in my parents' generation, had gone to college, had a single thought. Everybody's thought was the same. And the thought was, don't do anything that anybody would notice. Because... If they noticed you and you were unusual and aggressive in any way and you were Jewish, you would be in trouble. So stick together, 
be quiet, stay out of trouble. That's what everybody thought. But nobody thought anything else, so he was thinking all kinds of things. And I remember he would give these sermons, and everybody in the congregation would go like this when he would give these sermons because they were all thinking, what is he talking about? And these are very weird things that he's saying. You know, we don't, like he would talk about what is God and so on, and they would say, what? Don't talk to us about God. We're not interested in that. We're just Jews, you know. We don't want to hear anything about that. So I was actually, believe it or not, the only person that he could talk to. So he kind of like groomed me to be somebody that he could talk to. And we had wonderful, our classes were like two people, him and me. So really, it sounds like he played an absolutely critical role in your process oh, of absolutely. self-discovery. Absolutely. And we didn't just study, we would study Freud. Uh-huh. I read, believe it or not, I read Moses in Monotheism with him. Uh, you know, you know that book. It's a fantastic yeah, yeah. book, yeah. And we read all kinds of philosophy and all this stuff along with the Hebrew studies. So absolutely, no. Was he, he was, a mystic? Um, yes and no. He was. He appeared to be. And when you talk to him, he was very reasonable. So he wasn't. No, he wasn't a mystic in the ordinary mm-hmm. sense. But clearly, he had a, a sense of reality beyond the, certainly beyond the reality of the town that I lived in, which was very, very small and narrow you know, in every way. And of course, the first chance that he got to get a job closer to New York City, where culture was, he took it. And he stayed in that job in, in Deer Park on Long Island for the rest of his life. And uh, I would visit him there. So... So do you he actually appeared in my life at exactly the right moment and left at exactly the right moment. So, we'll go further, but it sounds as if, in a sense, your return, your, your turn to Buddhism, which came not long after high school, right? When you found Suzuki's book? Uh, it was in college, yeah. In college. Maybe two or three years into college. Right. And then, uh, 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 was that Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind? No. What was Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind wasn't written yet. Uh, okay. It was, the, uh, it was a collection of essays by D.T. Suzuki. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, sorry. So, was that discovery of Zen in college, in some sense, a return to your religious uh, period, uh, as in other words, was there a kind of you became kind of all American? I'm just trying to figure. Yeah, this yeah, out. yeah. That's you right. Became kind of all American sports girls, the whole nine yards. Right. And then in college, you you discovered Zen. Right. Well, somehow, uh, when I went to college, I had a very self conscious idea uh-huh. that I was going to start life all over again. Okay. I was going to like abandon everything that I had been. Where did you go to college? Colgate University yeah. in upstate New York. And, you know, I, nobody, when you go to college, nobody knows who you are right. or what you're... You so know, you can so start you can over. Start over again, you know. So I decided to do that. And, yes, uh, I really, for some reason, when I was in college, I was really suffering a lot. I was, you know, I had a lot of despair mm-hmm. and depression. I don't know if it was depression in the contemporary sense, but I was a dark character, you know. And, um, and I, did, I did really feel as if that exactly what you described was happening to me. That, in other words, I was in this period of childhood of being you know, gloomy and dark and pessimistic. And then 
I became religious out of that. And then I became, you know, like a cheerful, happy-go-lucky person, having a good time. And then I went back to the dark, to the darkness when I went into college. And then, you know, I was interested in philosophy and religion, which I studied in college. And I'm sure that that interest was in keeping with the mm -hmm. explorations that I had done with Rabbi Meza. Mm -hmm. And so I was studying, uh, like, the existentialist thinkers who were current then. And that's how I got involved in, in Zen, because my uh, idea was that the existentialist thinkers are telling you there's nobody in charge. You can't have faith in God. The whole world is out of control. And so this is depressing. And then I read D.T. Suzuki's book, a collection of essays, which were introduced by William Barrett, who was a leading uh, professor of existentialist thought at Columbia. And he introduced D.T. Suzuki's essays from the standpoint of existentialist thought, which was perfect for me. And my reading of D.T. Suzuki was that Zen was saying, yes, it's true, the world is uh, uh, out of control, there's nobody in charge, there's nothing to have faith in, and that's great news. And I realized, yeah, why would the fact that nobody's in charge and the whole world is just what it is be a source of despair? Why would that follow necessarily, unless you had been expecting somebody to be in charge and <laughs> fix everything? If you weren't expecting that, then, what's the, then why would that be bad news? So then I thought, yeah, Zen speaks to my negativity, which is um, absolutely, uh, without a doubt, true. But it doesn't, but it tells me that I can have that negativity and be free and cheerful enough despite that. Mm. So that was my reading of Zen. And I thought, well, good. That's the answer to everything. But I didn't know that there was any Zen practice. Believe it or not, in those days, it was not obvious that there was any Zen practice. In Japan, in the mind of somebody from Pittston, Pennsylvania, Japan might as well have been the moon. The idea that you could go to Japan or that anybody actually lived in Japan that wasn't you know, some kind of fantasy didn't, never occurred to me. So I just thought, I'll have to read this book and that would be it. And then later, it was only later that I discovered, oh, you actually could practice Zen. People actually did it, and there was a practice to be done. And as soon as I found out that that was the case, I said, well, I'm definitely going to do that. So that's how that, mm. my interest came about. Mm -hmm. So you were in college at Colgate. You discovered Zen. Um, uh, what happened then? It took you, did that take you out of the darkness that you were experiencing in college? Uh, well, the next thing that happened was um, the times mm -hmm. uh, began to impinge. Right. These were what years you were in college? I was in college from 64 to 68. Right. So I got really involved in politics and I became completely political. And uh, I, I was interested in writing. I started writing when I was about 12, writing poems. So I was always interested in writing. And when I was in college, I was in creative writing, did a lot of creative writing, and had a creative writing mentor, and was in with a group of people who were doing creative writing, fiction mostly. But also, was, I was on the newspaper. 
So I became the editor of the newspaper. And I was apparently, I just recently had um, a, uh, dinner in L.A. with college friends who reminded me that I was an, an outrageous uh, political radical. And I pissed off so many people with my version of the newspaper that this little college with had 1,800 students, they started a rival newspaper because they couldn't stand my politics. Were you SDS type? Yeah. Radical? Students for Democratic Society. Well, I wasn't, I don't think they had it there and I wasn't a member of it, uh -huh. but yes. And so they started a right-wing newspaper, uh, which actually still exists. This college still has two newspapers, even though there's so only about 2,000 students. So this part of your legacy. Yeah. yeah. So, and then we had like this enormous rebellion. It was, we were one of the schools that took over the administration building, and we lived in the administration building, and you know, it was all reported in the New York Times. It was r roughly around the same time that that happened at Columbia mm -hmm. in 1968. It was very exciting. It was you know, this political moment and the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking the other day that my family, as I said, they, their politics was just don't complain about anything. Yeah. Whatever is happening, say it's good. And my father had been in the war and had a lot of trust in Eisenhower and in the government in general. And you know, Jews in that generation were enormously, um, at least, the kind of Jews that I came from, were enormously grateful to America for being a place where anti-Semitism was not okay. So I grew up to feel like, well, our government is good, you know, and they know what they're doing, and why should I think otherwise? So I remember one friend of mine in college sitting me down and saying, no, 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 that's not right, and telling me about Vietnam, which I thought was... That's fine, you know, Vietnam, I don't know. It seems like the government thinks it's a good idea. It must be a good idea. So he sat me down and he just explained to me, you know, why this was not a good idea. And I remember, like, immediately thinking, by God, you're right. That's terrible. I can't believe it, you know. <laughs> and then from that moment on, I was very passionate about this whole thing. And so anti-Vietnam uh, was a big part of what we were involved with, and also anti uh, the uh, administration of the university. Mm -hmm. uh, like all universities, they're of course part of the mm -hmm. general ethics of the society. So yes, it was an exciting time. You know, you're a few years younger than I am, I think. I'm 71, you're what, 68? 68, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was the political editor of the Harvard Crimson uh, at Harvard. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and uh, and my father was the political philosopher Max Lerner, who was, um, uh, you know, well-known Jewish uh, writer. Right. Columnist. Yes, I remember him. Yeah. yeah. And he was pro the war. Oh. And yeah. so uh, I was writing columns. I remember one I wrote called "Marching on Machiavelli," mm. uh, because my father had also edited Machiavelli, and he had taken the the route that so many Jewish intellectuals took from social democrats or communists, he was a social democrat, right, right. to, uh, you know, conservative right. thinkers, you know, right. neoliberal, right, whatever you want right, to call them. Right. And so he was, uh, he, he came to the conclusion that 
in, in some respects, in terms of foreign policy, Nixon and Kissinger were his favorite, right. uh, you know, right. duo. And right. I always used to say that I could figure out his position on almost anything if I understood what the impact would be on Israel and the American imperium. Right. And if I knew those two things, I knew where, right, right. where he would come down. Right. But like you, except I was, I was moderate. Uh, I was against the war, uh, but with moderation. McGeorge Bundy came to um, debate with three of us at Harvard, and the other two were very radical and nasty to him. And I was civil, but... Mm -hmm. um, but critical. Mm -hmm. um, and um, then it turned out later that he helped the Ford Foundation, which he was then the head of, yeah. helped me start Full Circle, our school for troubled kids, which then led to Commonweal. Oh. So, uh, again, this was... So that paid off, being so Well, <laughs> it was like you in, in school and your mother telling you yeah, don't yeah, right, be right, negative about right, people. Right. And I certainly profoundly disagreed with him, but said it, with mm -hmm. civility, mm -hmm. so, but in any case, we followed that trajectory together. Although I think the impact was actually much more powerful. Like on my younger brother, who's two and a half years younger than I am, he was your contemporary, and somehow I think I was like a couple of years ahead of the curve, uh -huh. and the impact I think was even stronger on people who were seniors in 68. Or, That's right, because yeah. 68 was the absolute height yeah. of all this. Yeah. You've been listening to a conversation with Norman Fisher and Michael Lerner. This is part one of this two-part conversation. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.